Over 70 years ago, Dr. William Kramer of London's Imperial Cancer Research Fund taught us that cancer in humans may be considered an experiment carried out by people on themselves. Welcome to the ReachMD Book Club. I'm Dr. Leslie Lund, author of You Can Think Like a Psychiatrist, your host, and with me today is Dr. Deborah Davis. Dr. Davis heads up the country's first center for environmental oncology at the University of Pittsburgh Cancer Institute. Honored for her research and public policy work by various national and international groups, Dr. Davis is professor of epidemiology at the University of Pittsburgh Graduate School of Public Health and an expert advisor to the World Health Organization. Welcome to ReachMD, Dr. Davis. Thank you so much. Now, Dr. Davis, we all endured uh, Goodman and Gilman in our pharmacology classes. I think there's a little different side of them that you tell in your book, The Secret History of the War on Cancer, about Goodman and Gilman's efforts in cancer treatment. Tell us about them. Well, it's a fascinating story that really needs to be more widely known in, in medicine. Goodman and Gilman, of course, were the pioneers in the development of toxicology. You have to understand how toxicology got its start. Toxicology got its start as a result, unfortunately, of poison gas warfare. The main question that researchers were asking was, how much did it take of a compound to make something drop dead inside of the investigator? And in the western front of World War I, there was enormous use of, of poison gas. And a very astute army docs figured out that the survivors of poison gas had something very interesting. Those who survived had almost no white blood cells. At first, he thought it had been some kind of mistake. They did have the ability back in 1919 to actually do white blood counts. And what happened was he pointed out then in an article that I found that was quite amazing, that if anyone could ever try to help these people, they'd have to replenish their white cells. Well, fast forward to the development of leukemia. Patients with leukemia can have white blood cells as high as several hundred thousand. Survivors of poison gas, on the other hand, have close to zero white blood cells. So during the period after World War I, up to and through World War II, top-secret military research was carried on by, in fact, Goodman and Gilman, who looked at the possibility of applying poison gas to someone with leukemia to see if they could kill the cancer without killing the patient. They were two assistant professors at Yale at the time, Lewis Goodman and Alfred Gilman. And the first thing they did, of course, was a study on mice. And it's an interesting story, too. The mouse that they took was a mouse that had a tumor twice as big as the mouse. And they were able to get the tumor to regress after treatment with poison gas. But after they did that several different times with that mouse, it was interesting that afterwards, whenever they tried it with another mouse, they couldn't get the same result. So there's a charming memoir by Gilman who says, you know, if we picked the wrong mouse, who knows what would have happened. But starting in 1942, working basically under a top-secret Army contract, they applied this remedy to a 48-year-old silversmith who had a massive lymphosarcoma throughout his body. He couldn't even chew or swallow. And using this derivative of nitrogen mustard, they added a month to his life, which was unprecedented. He was near death when they started. And now the fact that he lived at all was just amazing. Wow. Well, we'll never look at Goodman and Gilman in the same way, will we? Well, no, they really gave us the idea that we could take these toxic agents and use them against cancer. And unfortunately, we now understand that the long-term consequences of using toxic agents to treat cancer are that we create secondary cancers or other morbidity. And, of course, Sidney Farber had a different approach altogether when he stunned 
medical world in 1948 by finding that children with leukemia would thrive if they were given folic acid. So he was able to give them agents that blocked the formation of folic acid and basically knocked out their cancers. Now, tell us a bit about the economics of cancer treatment. That's really a very interesting part of your book. Well, it's a very complicated story, is it not? Because, you see, cancer treatment is a really, really big business. It's over $100 billion today. And cancer prevention, I think, has the opportunity to become an even bigger business, but it's not even on the radar right now. We're so invested in these treatments. Just recently, the latest news on Procrit and some of the other drugs that have been used suggests that not only do they not necessarily work, but they're being overused and overprescribed. And of course, they're very, very costly. We really think we have to reprioritize how we're investing now, because no matter how efficient we may become at finding and treating cancer, and we're getting more efficient, if we don't reduce the demand for such treatment, we'll never make progress if only because cancer is in part a disease of aging and more of us are living longer and so we're going to be developed more cancer because of it. But if we also see an increase independent of aging, and that's what we're starting to see, then clearly we're not going to be able to solve this problem by simply putting more money. You can't spend infinite resources on infinite sickness. Dr. Davis, you mentioned in your book the kind of the suspicion that some of the large multinational chemical firms play it both ways, that they make money from carcinogens and then they make money from drugs that treat the ultimate cancer. Well, there's no question that that's been the case. One part of a company makes the widely used compound atrazine that can be found in drinking water throughout our country, and another part of the same company makes a drug to treat breast cancer. And... It's not that there's someone sitting at the top of the company figuring out how to make all these things happen. I think it's not quite so diabolical as that. But the reality is that we've got to understand more that there are long-term consequences of relying on chemicals that have these properties. And that's where the green revolution in chemistry is so exciting. My colleague Eric Beckman at the University of Pittsburgh and Terry Collins at Carnegie Mellon University are pioneering in creating less toxic chemicals in the first place that don't require petrochemicals. The green patriotism is a movement that I'm proud to be part of, that David Steinman, a publisher, and Jim Woolsey, the former director of the CIA, are supporting. And this is arguing that we've got to reduce our dependency on foreign oil as a way to promote patriotism in this country and promote our true independence by relying less on petrochemical feedstocks for the things we need in our lives today. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Deborah Davis, the former senior advisor to the Assistant Secretary for Health at the Department of Health and Human Services. We're discussing her latest book, The Secret History of the War on Cancer. Dr. Davis, one of the many stories in your book of scientists and academic leaders who played it kind of both ways, that they were working for industry and theoretically doing independent research. Can you give us an example of one of those, please? Well, it's one of the saddest things that I learned in in doing my book. I grew up, as did most epidemiologists, with tremendous respect and admiration for Richard Dahl. He's a giant in the field of epidemiology and public health research. I was shocked to learn 
that in 1979 he received $1,500 a day as a consultant to Monsanto, and he did not disclose this. So while he received that money from Monsanto, he was regularly producing articles supportive of some of the products that they made, never saying that he was being paid for his research. Now, by today's standards, that would not be acceptable, and I don't know whether he would be accepting the money were he alive at this point, but it was a source of great shock and, frankly, disappointment for me to learn that not only did he do that work for the chemical industry, but he also worked for the asbestos industry, and he was one of the first people to point to the hazards of asbestos. So secretly working for the asbestos industry, having first pointed to its hazards, it creates a very shall we say, awkward situation at the very least, and I will never know the extent to which he genuinely believed that these hazards were overstated or whether he was persuaded by the nature of his contracts with these people to weigh in heavily on their behalf. Well, and then, of course, then we have people like the first director of the American Cancer Society who then flipped. Tell us his story. Well, there's a charming photograph of him in my book, The Secret History of the War on Cancer, on the cover of Time magazine, Mm -hmm. with a lit match in his pipe stem on the cover of Time magazine. Dr. Clarence Cook-Little was the founding director of the American Cancer Society. He resigned that job in 1954 to become the scientific director of the Tobacco Industry Research Council. Now, it's not widely known that the American Medical Association was taking money from the tobacco industry well into the 1970s and 80s, and at one point accepted $10 million, when that was really big money, from the tobacco industry to help make a safe cigarette. And the editor of the Journal of the American Medical Association, Morris Fishbein, championed tobacco advertising in the journal and enriched the American Medical Association through revenues provided by the tobacco industry. Well, of course, our younger colleagues may not remember the cigarette ads that featured physicians talking about how great the cigarettes were. Well, you know, this was a very interesting comment that the first genius of public relations was a man named Edward Bernays, and he realized that the best public relations appears as scientific advice. Mm -hmm. And so he developed this idea that doctors recommend camels and doctors advise smoking to soothe the T-zone. And it was, of course, complete nonsense, but it was back in the days before we even thought about scientific medicine, and it was assumed if you had a white coat, you knew what you were talking about. That's an assumption that I think is still warranted in many cases, but the idea that there was scientific evidence behind the value of smoking, that if you smoked, you would avoid obesity, well, it's true, but it's not the right way to do it. In our final minutes, where do you see this all heading? You know, in your wish list, in your crystal ball, what do you hope will happen in the next decade or so? Well, it's happening. I'm talking to people like you. My book is the number three bestseller in Canada. It's being widely reviewed and discussed because it's not just a book. It's about a whole new way of approaching medicine. Healthcare without harm is leading a revolution around the world so that doctors are starting to think about their own ecological footprint and how they can reduce their demand on the environment. And we are working with the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center to go green. That means we're using microfiber mops to reduce the amount of water, we're reducing the amount of toxic chemicals, we're procuring some of our energy from renewables, and that's happening on a large scale around the world today. That's why, despite the downturn in the stock market, those stocks and those companies that are committed to greening are doing better now 
than others. So I think that we are on the verge of a fundamental change in the way we're approaching the practice of medicine to get back to the main concept of preventing harm and doing what we can to help people understand what they need to do to keep themselves healthy in the first place. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. We've been discussing her book, The Secret History of the War on Cancer, with its author, Dr. Deborah Davis. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the ReachMD Book Club on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments, so please visit us at ReachMD.com. I'd love to hear what books you're reading. Our new on-demand and podcast features will also allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening.